to the reading of God's word. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 50. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body, perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, as far as the reading of God's word, let us ask his blessing upon it now. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you once again for your word. For your word, we thank you for the fact that it is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. So we pray that as your word is proclaimed today, that you would grant to us faith to believe all that is promised to us in the gospel, as well as hearts of gratitude for all that Christ has done. And we ask all this in his name. Amen. Well, beloved in the Lord, what is heaven going to be like? If the cartoons that I watched as a kid are anything to be relied upon, then heaven will be some sort of ethereal, semi-transparent existence where we'll, uh, we'll look like ourselves, but we'll be wearing white robes and have wings, and we'll have harps and halos, and we'll be uh, strumming on those harps sitting in a cloud. Of course, those cartoonists who drew those cartoons that I watched as a kid didn't come up with that concept from thin air. As a matter of fact, they got a lot of that imagery from some of the classic art that we see throughout the Middle Ages and during the time of the Renaissance. And yet, no wonder, in our present day, we don't really look forward to heaven. I don't know about you, but having a semi-transparent, ethereal existence, strumming an instrument that I don't know how to play or really enjoy all that much, sitting on a cloud doesn't sound all that exciting. And yet, what a far cry that is from the picture we have in Scripture, and in particular in our passage today, about the type of existence that we will have when Christ returns and brings heaven itself down to earth. See, the Apostle Paul has been contrasting our what he calls our natural bodies, the bodies that we presently have from Adam, with the glorified bodies that we will receive when at Christ's return. Presently, we are of the dust, subject to change and decay. But the glorified state of existence, what heaven will be like, and how we will experience, as Paul tells us, tells us is one that is raised, led, filled, and indeed overflowing with the life-giving Spirit himself. And so as Paul has been developing his argument, he's shown how the doctrine of the resurrection, the fact that at the last day when Christ returns, he will glorify our bodies and take our humanity to the next level. 
he has shown that that is not only logically consistent with the way in which God has revealed himself in the original creation, having created a diversity of things that differ in glory, both great and small, but as he's been driving home now, he shows how it's not only logically logically, uh, uh, consistent, it's absolutely necessary for us to be glorified in order to enter heaven itself. And that's what he means in verse 50 when he says flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Again, he's not denying the fact that our resurrected bodies will be physical. But rather, when he uses this term, flesh and blood, he's using a a stock phrase in much the same way we use it today to refer to our human weakness and frailty. When he describes flesh and blood, he's referring to us in our natural state as we presently are of the earth and the uh, uh, descendants of Adam, the man of dust. We are in this corrupted and corruptible state, incapable of coming into the full possession of the kingdom of God. Why? Well, because heaven is a, is a confirmed state of righteousness and blessedness without any possibility of reversal. We just got to witness the baptism of Enzo Broncolioni, this, this uh, sweet little baby that has come into the world. And when we see uh, you know, little babies that are born, we, just, you know, we, we, we uh, think how precious they are, and we see that they are just budding with new life, and they have so much potential. And yet baptism reminds us of the fact that as soon as we are born, we begin to die. That as we are in our present natural state, we are subject to change and to decay. And yet how glorious it is that we look forward to a state in which things will be confirmed. You know, this day and age, as good as things are, we're always told, enjoy it while it lasts. Enjoy it while it lasts. I'm getting to experience that a bit, having turned 40 this year. I didn't enjoy it as much, my 30s, as much as I should have. Why? Because as good as things are, they always get worse. That's just how things are in this present fallen age. According to our natural state, we're a corruptible and corrupted. And yet, what do we look forward to? A confirmed state of righteousness and blessedness where it will never change. And there is, never a, there is no possibility of things getting worse, only better. And so that's why flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of heaven. That's why we need to be changed in order to enter there. And that's what Paul says when he reveals this mystery in verse 51. This is something that was uh, concealed in the Old Testament, but now is being revealed in the New You see, whereas the Old Testament clearly spoke of the resurrection at the last day, what Paul tells us, he tells us something more here, in that while all will be raised at the last day, while the Old Testament spoke that all will be raised at the last day, Paul reveals to us the fact that that not all who are united to Christ will in fact have to face death. There will be those who are alive and remain at the coming of the Lord, as Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians 4. And if the Lord should come back right now, those of us united to Christ by faith would not have to face death. And yet here's the main point. While not all Christians will die, or that is, as Paul says, fall asleep, 
we all will be changed. We all will be changed. That is glorified into the image of the man of heaven, made fit to dwell in God's presence. And so resurrection entails much more than just being brought back to life. It is a radical transformation. As Paul already alluded to it with the concept of what you plant, a seed, is not the same thing that comes out of the ground. That is a radical change. Scripture, uh, not here, but in other cases, talks about this type of change as a metamorphosis, as a transformation, much in the same way that we see in the natural world. Now, my wife loves all creatures, great and small. She won't even kill a spider that's in the house, but will gently relocate it outside. And another creature that she doesn't want to kill are caterpillars. I hate caterpillars. Not only are they grotesque, but they also eat your, your leaves. They destroy your tomato plant. And yet she won't kill a caterpillar. You know why? Well, because it's going to turn into a beautiful butterfly. And yet, boys and girls, the caterpillar doesn't look anything like the butterfly it will become. So it is with us. Our present state of existence is not worth comparison with the glory that will be revealed in us as we are conformed into the image of Christ at his return. That's the radical transformation that awaits us all who believe in Jesus. And yet, unlike the plant that grows, you plant the seed and you've got to wait a long time for the plant to sprout, or unlike the caterpillar who takes a a time in his cocoon to come out, the change that we will experience will be instantaneous. It won't be a lengthy, drawn-out process, but it will happen, as Paul says, in a moment. This word here that Paul uses is the smallest amount of time conceivable. So small that you can't cut it in half. I suppose today we refer to that amount of time as a nanosecond. He says it's in a twinkling of an eye, just as the the slightest eye movement, the slightest eye twitch. It's, It's that speed. If you blink, you'll miss it. And yet what's fascinating, when Christ returns... The transformation that we will undergo won't even be the main focus of attention. We won't even be looking at ourselves, but rather we'll be looking at Christ. As as John tells us in 1 John 3, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him. There's that transformation being conformed to the glorious image of Christ. Why? Because John says we shall see him as he is. And so it will be over before we even realize it. We'll be focusing on Christ. And then as soon as we are able to get a glimpse of ourselves, we'll realize that we will be glorified together with him. Paul says that this will happen at the last trumpet. Now, boys and girls, in the ancient world, trumpets were used to announce important events. Like the coming of the king, for example. If the king were coming to a village, they would, they would have someone go ahead with the trumpet and they'd blow the trumpet and everyone would, their ears would perk up and they would know something important is happening. Well, both in Old and New Testaments, trumpets were used to proclaim the coming of the Lord. You see this, for example, on Mount Sinai. Trumpets would blow because God was descending on the mountain. And this will announce not just the coming of the Lord in the Old Testament, but as Paul says, 
Even though the trumpet sounded from heaven in the past, Paul calls this the last trumpet since it announces the end that he referred to back in verse 24. This is the same thing that Paul describes in 1 Thessalonians 4.16 when he says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And yet notice that Paul calls this the last trumpet. Why? Well, because, as I said, it announces the end, as he referenced in verse 24, that is, the end of the world as we know it and the consummation of all things. And yet it's interesting tying together all the times in which Paul uses that word last in this chapter. We find that at the last trumpet, the last Adam will bring an end to our last enemy, death itself. All of these things occur at the end when Christ returns. So also coinciding with this happening at the same time will be our resurrection. As Paul says, the trumpet will sound, signaling the time for those asleep in Christ to wake up to life eternal and for all of us to be changed incorruptible. Now, this is a far cry from the Greek notion of the afterlife, the, the, uh, the idea that was floating around in Paul's day that would have been very familiar to his Corinthian audience, and I suspect is pretty familiar to us today, at least those of us who watch Tom and Jerry cartoons. You see, they viewed the afterlife, and they viewed the body, really, as the prison house of the soul. It's our bodies which are keeping it down. And so what do we need to do? Well, just get rid of these bodies. Shed that prison house of the soul and allow the soul to ascend up into heaven. And so death was viewed as a natural and yet benign transition into an unbodied existence. Well, that's far different than what the Apostle Paul is describing here and what he describes, for example, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. He says there, for we know that if the tent, that is our earthly home, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may, we, we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. And so Paul isn't uh, envisioning our final salvation as being an unbodied existence, not, uh, that is, uh, being found naked, as it were. No, he describes our final glorified state as being further clothed, further clothed in the sense that our mortality is swallowed up by life. And yet it's important, getting back to our passage, to highlight that it is one in the same body that we sow in the ground that is raised incorruptible. Notice what he says in verse 53. He says, For this imperishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body, he repeats that word this four times in two verses, clearly referring to this body that we presently have. And so it's not a new body that awaits us in heaven. It's this body that will be raised 
and changed incorruptible. We see continuity between our present existence and the one in which we await. And yet it's characterized as a further clothing. Notice Paul uses that metaphor. You put it on. Boys and girls, like you got up this morning and your parents said, put your church clothes on. You put on those clothes. So it is at the last day, we will further clothe these mortal bodies so that they will become immortal. We further clothe these, these corruptible bodies so that they will become incorruptible, unable to be changed. And when this resurrection and transformation of the people of God occurs, then shall come to pass the words of the prophets spoken long ago. As Paul proves his point by quoting from two Old Testament prophets. First, he alludes to Isaiah chapter 25, verse 8, when he says, Death is swallowed up in victory. He alludes, as I said, to Isaiah 25, verse 8, which says, He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. This idea of death being swallowed up, it is done away in victory. Boys and girls, maybe right now you're learning how to swallow pills. If the doctor prescribes you medication or if you have vitamins that you take, if you can't chew on those pills, what do you need to do? Well, you got to swallow them. And the key to swallowing those pills is you put it on the back of your tongue and you pretend like it's not there. And then you just drink water. And guess what? It's swallowed up. It's done away. You never see it again. And that is how Paul describes death at the last day at our resurrection. What happens? It's swallowed up in our victory. You see, our victory is death's defeat. Our resurrection spells the end of our last enemy. And that's why the Apostle Paul then goes on to quote from Hosea chapter 13. When he says, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Now, it's fascinating. If you have the time and maybe later today, you can go back and read Hosea chapter 13. And what you'll find there is, in fact... Uh, what the prophet Hosea is speaking about in chapter 13 is judgment that will come upon the people of God. And when he says, oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? He's calling upon death to come and bring judgment against God's wicked and rebellious people. And yet the apostle Paul, in quoting this verse, gives it a New Testament flavor. Instead of rather calling upon death to execute judgment upon the people of God, for their sin and unbelief. The Apostle Paul turns this into a taunt. Now, we have various reactions to death in our society today. Some people are terrified of it. Other people want to ignore it altogether. You never speak of death. Sometimes we sugarcoat it. Sometimes we speak of death as a natural thing, or maybe even a beautiful thing. And yet I wonder if anyone ever had the gall to taunt death. That's what the Apostle Paul does here. Like at a sporting event against your opponent. Where is your victory? Where is your sting? You can't hurt me. That's what the Apostle Paul's doing here. As he quotes from, uh, from Hosea the prophet. He taunts death. And yet before death could even give its answer, 
In verse 56, the Apostle Paul provides an answer to his questions. He tells us what the sting of death is. He says, the sting of death is sin. Now, Paul's answer has puzzled a lot of commentators because Paul hasn't really been discussing the topic of sin uh, up until this point. The last time he mentioned sin was early in the chapter when he said that Christ Jesus died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. And in verse 17, when he says, if Christ is not raised, then we are still in our sins. But sin really hasn't been in the forefront of the apostle's mind, especially most recently in the passage when he's considering Adam, not after the fall, but before the fall, created in his natural state. And he hasn't even mentioned the concept of the law at all in this chapter. And so how is it at the very end of the chapter, why, is it, does, he, why does he throw in these concepts of sin and the law and the relationship these two things have? Well, in one very short verse where Paul says the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, he summarizes basically his entire argument that he will make some two years later when he pens the epistle to the Romans. Here, Romans chapter 4 through 7 is where we should turn to get a full explanation of what the Apostle Paul means when he says that the sting of sin is death, or sorry, that the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. Of course, we don't have time to go through all of Romans 4 through 7, but a couple things to highlight. You see, if there was no sin, there would be no death. As God told Adam, the day you eat thereof, you shall surely die, introducing death into the world. That's Paul's point in Romans 5 when he says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, so death spread to all men, because all sinned. And later he says, for the wages of sin is death. You see, Paul's noticed, or he's highlighted the fact that death is our mortal enemy. It is our last enemy. And yet what's ironic is that we are the ones who armed him. We are the ones who ushered in his tyrannical rule. It was our sin that brought death in and let it reign. And yet what was the power? What gives power to this sin? Paul says it is the law. And here I think that word, the word, the letter there for law should be capitalized because Paul specifically is referring to the law given to Moses on Mount Sinai. Now, how can Paul say that the power of sin is the law? I thought God would give us the law in order for us not to sin. Well, as we turn to the book of Romans, we find that the law is the power of sin because the law gives the knowledge of sin. Paul highlights how that works experientially in Romans chapter 7 when he says, what, what then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life produced 
proved to be death to me. And so here the Apostle Paul highlights the deadly combination of sin and the law. When us as sinful creatures confront the law, it produces sin, which produces death. And so here there's an implicit warning for us that we should never deceive ourselves into thinking that if having begun in the spirit, we somehow can be completed or perfected in the flesh through the works of the law. Never can we earn eternal life or earn that glory that Christ has for us through the works of the law. It only brings death. It only brings condemnation and death. And that despair that we in and of ourselves, apart from Christ, that we would have when confronted with the law is characterized in Romans chapter 7 when the Apostle Paul says, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And I think each and every one of us can give a hearty amen. Who, indeed, will deliver us from these natural bodies of death? Well, as he did at the end of Romans chapter 7, so he does here at the end of 1 Corinthians 15. The Apostle Paul, in answering that question, exults in a prayer of thanksgiving. Verse 57, but thanks be to God. You see, man brought death into the world, so also through man came the resurrection of the dead, but that came through the mighty work, the mighty working and operation of God to whom all glory is due. Thanks be to God. Left in and of ourselves, we have sinned the law and death, but God came, and so that's why Paul gives thanks. And he describes God as the one who gives. Now notice here the tense of this word. It's present tense. And that's important because a lot of what 1 Corinthians 15 has to deal with is what we have yet to look forward to. Our future glorification. We're still awaiting these things. And yet here Paul at the end reminds us that although there is much we have yet to look forward to, the victory is presently ours now. God gives us the victory now. This is why we need not fear death. This is why the Apostle Paul could taunt death. Hebrews chapter 2 talks about how the devil uses the fear of death to enslave people their entire lives. And yet we have been freed, redeemed from that tyranny, that bondage. It's a real enemy. It's a terrible thing. But death has been disarmed. Its sting has been taken away. Why? Because our sin has been taken away. And we are no longer under the law, but we are under grace. And that's why Paul could say we get this victory through our Lord. Through our Lord Jesus Christ, the very one who died for our sins, who was buried, who was raised, who appeared to the apostles. He will come again to defeat all his and our enemies and conform us entirely into his image and usher us into the kingdom of his God. And his father. And as the book of Revelation, as we'll conclude with this, as the book of Revelation summarizes what that will be like, referencing also Hosea chapter 13, it says, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. 
He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. May God grant to us faith to believe these trustworthy and true words. Amen? Let's give thanks. Dear Lord Jesus Christ, we do thank you that you were pleased in the fullness of time to be born of woman, to be born under the law, to come in the likeness of sinful flesh and to live a life of suffering and obedience for us and for our salvation. And we thank you also for that living hope that you have given to us, that we can look forward to the day in which this mortal body will put on immortality, that this corruptible body will put on incorruption and that we will be confirmed in a state of righteousness and glory and blessedness and that will never change. And we thank you also for the gift of your Holy Spirit who serves as that guarantee and seal of the day in which you will come and make all things new. Until then, O Lord, grant to us strength to walk these lives in obedience unto you. And we ask all this in your name. Amen.